0: Welcome back to Body Talk with Bex. This week I have Erin on and she has such an incredible story. She talks about being born with a spinal tumor and having a seven year relationship with the kidney stone and all kinds of just really entertaining things in addition to everything she's been through. So let's just jump right on in. I don't know like a whole lot about what you've been through or like what age you were when everything started happening. So I don't know if you just want to just start at the beginning and walk us through everything.
1: Yeah, sure. So it started pretty early, actually. I know that a lot of people have a lot of different situations, but mine actually began even before I was born, but not long before. So my mom went in for a regular ultrasound and everything was normal. She felt like something was off. And so even though they scanned her and said everything was fine, she called a friend of hers who was an OBGYN. And they said, just come on in, like we'll do another scan, check things out. So she went in for this extra scan a couple of weeks later. And that's when the doctor said, there's something very wrong here and you need to go to Johns Hopkins right away. And what she basically found out was there was a massive tumor growing from my tailbone that was already almost the same size as I was. And if they did not take immediate action, I was going to go into heart failure and I was going to die. At the time, I think they said that There was only two hospitals in the country that were willing to do a procedure to take me out and try to have me survive. And one of them was Hopkins when she was coming out of that appointment at Hopkins. Her water broke two months early and I came into the world a little bit early, about 30 weeks gestation with a tumor that weighed four pounds. And I weighed three. Wow. So from the get go, it wasn't a great situation. (laughs) Uh, The team at Hopkins did a really great job of setting up uh, people really fast and giving me the best chance from the get go to survive. I think once I came out, I had a surgery to get my colostomy placed so that they could work on the tumor because it was growing basically from my tailbone and it had also grown up my spinal column, about halfway Mm. to T12. So in the first operation, their biggest concern was basically getting the bulk of the tumor off and conserving my blood flow because it was taking up so much of my blood supply. And that was a very long operation. And that's when I lost my blood supply about two times over. I went into cardiac arrest multiple times. But they stopped the surgery because I became so unstable. And then, in a second surgery, they went back in and removed the tumor that was around my spinal cord.
0: Wow. That's. <laughs> Your mom is so lucky that, well, not lucky, but it's pretty incredible like a mother's instinct to know that something was wrong because like if she hadn't gone in for that second appointment you know things could have been very different yeah you gotta
1: say a lot about a mother's instinct for sure
0: yeah yeah wow That's, that must have been so hard to handle too like for her watching her kid go through that and yeah yeah not being able to help, not being able to do anything like physically, you know,
1: like she just had you. I'm sure she just wanted to hold you and protect you from everything. I can only imagine just getting your baby with stuff to the NICU as soon as they're born. Yeah, it's all thrown at You in like a span of a couple weeks and everything just like hits the fan, everything that could yeah. have gone wrong, was going wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about hitting the ground running. <laughs> yeah a lot of people are like oh you're so brave for going through all of that i'm like i don't remember any of it honestly like <laughs> my parents are the ones that went through it they're the ones that you should be congratulating yeah to. wow
0: i mean still i mean that's a lot for your body to go through and pretty impressive
1: that you did pull
0: through all of that
1: yeah it was quite a one for the books one for the medical textbooks as well I know they definitely asked for my parents' consent to put this into the medical literature. Because wow. this, the tumor is called the sacral teratoma. And teratomas by nature are tumors that grow very rapidly, very quickly and it just so happened that mine was one that grew particularly quickly it also took up a large amount of my blood supply which can be very dangerous it leads to something called fetal hydrops which is basically heart failure because when you're an infant you're so small like your own blood supply is so important if you have to supply a tumor as well it becomes it becomes very dangerous and then the final thing that they had to worry about finally after they got the tumor off and everything like that was isn't malignant. Right? So like a lot of these tumors, teratomas are usually actually benign, even though they grow very quickly. I think it's about 1% of cases, usually when they're allowed to grow for a long period of time, that they become malignant. And I was uh, 1% of those cases, where it turned out it was malignant, they got the pathology back. And they basically gave my parents a choice, which was you can either pursue chemotherapy and risk her losing her hearing, her kidney function, because these drugs are so toxic, or you can wait and see. And they basically told them either way, if this cancer comes back, this is 1996, if it comes back, we don't have any treatment methods that will be viable to kick it back So it's really a choice of what kind of quality of life do you want? And so they chose to go, no treatment, wait and see. I can only imagine how those, that year was for them. Terrifying. (laughs) In in one word, terrifying. (laughs) My My dad, like uh, the only time I've seen him ever get emotional is when he has to talk about this period of time. He's a very tough, like Wall Street man. You know, yeah, no emotions, but that's the only time I see him get emotional. I oh, can, of course. <laughs> I'm very grateful for the care that I received at Hopkins. And so they watched me for very closely for the first year of my life. And yet again, my mother, when she was doing therapy with me in the pool. She was helping me swim around. She found a bump on my back. She took me in immediately they did an MRI and my tumor had come back. So they resected that tumor. And luckily when the pathology came back, it was benign. So the part that had grown back was not the cancerous part and it had not had time to become cancerous or metastasize. So that was the last part of the tumor that I had to worry about. And when I was, I think three years old, I was declared cancer free. Wow. But that of well, that was a great accomplishment. It came with a lot of obviously medical issues. When they resected the tumor, the tumor was so large, it had displaced both of my hips, rearranged my pelvic organs. Oh, wow. And when they resected it, they had to take all of the nerves, parts of my spinal column, my coccyx, Anything that the tumor touched, they really tried to take with them to avoid the possibility of recurrence, especially because it was malignant. And that came at a heavy price of a lot of nerve damage, a lot of muscle loss, things like that. Wow. One of the consequences is I have a completely neurogenic bladder, neurogenic bowel. I have paralysis on the right side of my leg and I have, I think that's the extent of it neurological-wise. They also had to basically put my hips back in their sockets. Wow. And my spine is shaped slightly differently because of the operations they had to do while resecting the tumor. Wow. It works for me.
0: (laughs) I mean, that's all it needs to do. Can you, just so everyone in the audience can, can understand what it means, can you go back and just kind of explain what a neurologic like bladder would be?
1: Yeah, so a neurogenic bladder is basically Neurogenic, when, excuse me. I said that word wrong. <laughs> it's, it's all medical speak. It's when your bladder, no nerves to your bladder, basically. I think it's very common also in extra feet. It is, yeah
0: we haven't used that term though on the show so Mm i just wanted to clarify that and so you have a neurogenic bladder and a what else a neurogenic bowel oh wow so you
1: can't feel either right so basically neurogenic means the the nerves are damaged for each individual that can be a different extent for me it's that doesn't work at all it doesn't work completely cut off no nerves so my bladder never grew Oh, so it remained really small. It couldn't really hold a lot of liquid. So I was constantly just, I couldn't keep my bladder full. So I wore pull ups until I was about seven, until I had an operation for my bladder. And I remember not liking the pull ups. I remember yeah. <laughs> I was in them for a longer time than the other kids and the other kids were noticing. And it was my biggest source of contention, even though I had these ankle foot orthotics on my legs. And I had my colostomy bag. No, I didn't. I didn't like the pull-ups. I <laughs> you had your priorities straight, <laughs> even at a young age. <laughs> oh yeah. My dad tried to make it fun. He got ones with like Mickey Mouse on them, like, or Minnie Mouse. It was Minnie Mouse. Aww. I despised Minnie Mouse and pink and purple pull-ups, I was like, <laughs> I don't wanna wear these anymore. I wanna be a big girl. I wanna wear underwear, you know? Yeah. So that's when my parents started to look into, okay, what can we do about this? And that's when they met the Dr. John Gearhart at Hopkins and his team and him and one of his residents at the time, Dr. Ranjeev Matthews performed a bladder augmentation and metrophenov procedure. Mm-hmm and so they completely closed my urethra off from the bottom i can't pee at all from below and so i catheterized through a stoma in my belly button or what used to be my belly button yeah i had that for a while
0: so you got that when you were seven Mm -hmm. did you go on a shopping trip right after for for cute underwear
1: oh yeah i was thrilled. And then it, w- it happened over the summertime. And at the end of the summer, my dad and I went sailing and I peed over the side of the boat. I was <laughs> very happy. <laughs> Loved that feature. That's awesome. <laughs> so that went... Well, you didn't have any complications after the surgery. There were like, uh, there were a few hiccups, you know. They put you, they give you all those tubes that, you know, are coming out if you went yeah. all those places. I accidentally stepped on one and it came out. Oh my God. I did this at the Ronald McDonald's house in Baltimore. I was running around with a friend of mine who she was, a, she was like the exact same age. She had extra fees. She had had the operation three days before, like after me. So we were synced up with like our bags and our tubes. And when we got them out and we were running around, and I stepped on one of my tubes and it came out and we go to the ER and we're like, it's fine. Right? Like she's getting it out tomorrow that was my appointment it was the next day and they said we're really sorry about this we have to put it back really it was the worst out of everything that was so tough to go through in that procedure the worst thing was definitely them having to reinsert that like subpubic catheter yeah i was not happy yeah that's not a fun
0: one that's not a fun one at all
1: (laughs) but I mean other than that like the biggest like the biggest memories I have of that are honestly like running around the Ronald McDonald house and meeting a lot of kids with a lot of different medical conditions that um it was it was quite a interesting experience some of them were they seemed fine some of them were really sick Some of them had extra had or had a surgery. Some of them had cancer, going through treatments, a lot of different stories, a lot of different families from different countries. Um, So I got a really really amazing view into how many people come to the US to seek the expert medical treatment and hearing their stories and how far they came. We had a family we befriended from Pakistan helping, trying to get their son's brain tumor removed, family from Africa who would cook us some of their homemade meals from Tanzania. She taught me some Swahili. That's really cool. That's really cool. It was like a little family. It was was kind of a good summer besides, you know, some of the medical complications. (laughs)
0: Right. Okay. Did you have any surgeries done
1: for your bowel? I didn't actually, besides the initial colostomy placement, which they, they initially did that as like a temporary, like, let's just get everything out of the way before we go in here. And they're like, oh, let's just leave it. Okay. So they did leave it. I was wondering if they did. Yeah. They, they did some tests to see like, is it viable? Like. I have an anal sphincter. I have all of that, but they removed so many of my muscles, including some of my pelvic floor muscles that are really important for that sphincter. It was deemed not. It was not advised to reverse it, and I was perfectly comfortable with it. Honestly, it worked. Oh, fine. comfortable with the ostomy? Yeah, ostomy. Yeah. I mean, I had never known any different. It. What? It didn't really bug me i think the first time i noticed that i had like something different was when i was around 10 years old i realized other kids like didn't go to the bathroom the same way that i did and that's also the first time i thought i want to meet someone my age who also has something like that i remember my dad was like well our neighbor, like Dr. Katz, has an ostomy bag. I'm like, but he's old. <laughs> and my dad was like, that's when I realized I needed to do some research. <laughs> so he got on his computer and he typed in ostomy camp. And the first result that popped up was Camp Canada in Bragg Creek, Alberta. And it was a camp for kids, I think, 9 to 18 with bowel and bladder conditions. And so for from the ages, I think I started when I, going when I was 10, he would fly with me to Canada and I'd go to a camp out in the Rockies for a week with a bunch of other Canadians with ostomies and metropanoffs and things like that. And I had no idea that there was actually a US version of this until I was 14. And the way I found out was I was at camp in Canada and there was an American counselor, which, you know, really big deal. I was the only other American up to this point. I was like, who are you? Right. (laughs) I'm Caleb, I'm from Texas and I have a Mitrovinov. That's literally how we introduced each other at camp. (laughs) It's like, okay, Caleb from Texas, we're going to be best friends. We became very good buddies. He was my favorite counselor. I followed him around everywhere. He's like, you know, there's a US version of this camp. Like, what? (laughs) No way. (laughs) So we got home and I did my own Googling this time because I was 14 and found out about Youth Rally, which I'm sure you've heard of by now. Next year I went.
0: <laughs> Did you keep going to the other one? Did you go to both or oh, just
1: yeah, one? I, I tag teamed them. Nice. I, I was able to do that actually. The rest of the time I was eligible to go to both camps. They never lined up. <gasps> oh, that's nice. Yeah. So you know what
0: was what was
1: the one in Canada called? It's called Camp Canada. And it's an Easter seals camp. So, Easter Ooh, seals, yeah. Yeah, basically, um, it's not a camp, not just for kids with ostomy and metrophenol, bowel, and bladder issues. They have a different program every week for different people. So, they have a week for celiac disease, they have a week for kidney patients, they have a week for heart patients, for diabetes, things like that and the counselors that we had were a mix of people from all the camps oh so that's cool yeah it was really neat so a lot of them had been former counselors at camps and now they were full-time they were sorry they were campers and now they were full-time counselors and they got to see all the kids come through the camp so that that's, was really that's cool, really cool.
0: Uh, I'll look that up and link it in case anyone else wants to
1: double team the camps over the summer. Yeah, I can highly recommend. It holds a very special place in my heart. I've met some of my very good friends there. Um, I call my Canadian pals. And it's, it's very outdoorsy. I've got to say, I love both camps very much. They both hold a very dear place to my heart. I think they both do things very differently, but in a very good way. So Camp Canada is much more outdoorsy, much more camp-like experience. And Rally is very educational. You learn a lot. It can be really overwhelming your first year because you're getting bombarded by basically educational sessions. I mean, they divide you up by diagnosis group, they divide you up by your management technique, whether it be an ostomy or a off, or you haven't had surgery yet, or you take medication, but you learn a lot. I think Camp Canada is more about getting you out of your shell, showing you what you can do, pushing your limits. And rally is really good for informing yourself, especially if you don't know what you wanna do next in terms of what kind of procedure you wanna get, something like that.
0: I really like that. It sounds like it would be actually very beneficial to most people to do both. Yeah,
1: if, if they can, I recommend both.
0: <laughs> but you're not biased at all from having done both. Not at all. <laughs> okay, so you have the Mitrofenov, You have the colostomy. Mm -hmm. You said one of your legs has right side
1: paralysis set in? Yeah. So my legs, both my legs have some nerve issues, but most of the damage was done on the right side of my body. So a lot of the paralysis is on my right leg. So I can't move my right foot up and down. Mm. Um, And I don't have feeling in certain parts of my legs. I also have decreased strength on my right leg in particular, and for some mysterious reason, we don't really know why, all the bones on the right side of my body from the waist down are smaller than my left side. They think it has something to do with, I don't know, all the drugs they gave me as a child. Who knows? But it has made my right leg an inch shorter than my left. Oh, wow. Which is... It actually turns out to be pretty significant and it was causing some issues. So I finally talked to my orthopedic surgeon, who's a very like, if you have an issue, come by, but otherwise we're gonna leave you alone. <laughs> and so I came in, I was like, my hip's been hurting a lot. he's like, yeah, you know, you have a one inch leg length discrepancy. We We should fix that. <laughs> okay. Like, that sounds good let's let's give it a go and so i have um, a lift on the outside of all my shoes on the right side i get them custom done by a podiatrist they're some of the nicest people and they literally they customize it to like whatever color the shoe you want they'll they do a lift they have to do a lift externally because it's so large okay and they match it to your shoe and that's really cool yeah it's really neat
0: and you didn't have any trouble like learning to walk in them no actually like, did it feel
1: that much different it was it was weird because i didn't realize i had this problem until like my sophomore year of college and when i first got it i remember wow my back kind of hurts and they said oh well, that's normal because your body's adjusting because it adjusted to this discrepancy and now it has to readjust to nor- this new normal and right so- I think for the first like month, I was like, oh, my back kind of hurts. And then my hip pain went away. And it was great. And now if I don't have the lift on my shoes and I walk for say 30 minutes, my back starts to hurt. It's like, it's gone. It's got, it got so used to its new normal that now it notices anything else. Your body really clues into things.
0: Yeah. Well, I bet it was less noticeable as you were growing because it was slowly adjusting to a, you know, a smaller yeah. amount of discrepancy. Exactly. And like that discrepancy grew while you were growing. Yeah. I'm assuming anyways that like, yeah, super small changes over time. Exactly. Small, small enough that you didn't notice it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly what it
1: was. Yeah. Wow. And so your one of your hips was hurting from that? Yeah. Well, one of my hips so both my hips were displaced when I was born because of the tumor. They popped them back in. But one one of my hips, my left hip wouldn't stay in its socket. Oh. So, they basically had to do a Uh, surgery to put it back in place. It's called a femoral ileal osteotomy. It's basically where they break your femur and then they break, yeah, (laughs) your (laughs) pelvis. (laughs) And the reason they're breaking your bones is so that they can put the hip back where it needs to be, right. It's I still think, not fun, though. It's, it's not. I think that was a pretty rough <laughs> surgery. It's good I don't remember most of it. I think they have to do something similar for a lot of people with extra feet because mm-hmm. the pelvis is open also at birth. So it's something very similar to that. It was just on one side. So, you know, you get the big body cast. All right. Yeah. Fun. How long were you in a cast for? Oh, it was a long time, especially for my parents who had to deal with changing a diaper in oh. a big purple spica cast. Right. I think it was like almost almost six months. Wow. It was That's a, a long year. time. Wow. Yeah. It, uh, I just remember having a good time. My dad got me like a little scooter. You know those scooters that you had in gym class that you could like scooch around on the floor on? Yeah. It's like four wheels. He got that for me so I could lay on my belly and like scoot around on the floor to get around. That's so cute. So I could get around perfectly fine. I was perfectly content with myself and my big purple cast.
0: Nobody else was,
1: though. After (laughs) six months, it starts to get kind of stinky. So we finally got to the day. We get to take the cast off and they're doing the cast removal. (laughs) And this poor man who has to take the cast off he's like oh you got a dead bird in there oh my <laughs> yeah i think awesome. six months in a spike of cash is gonna do something it, yeah it does a lot
0: <laughs> so when what was your last surgery are we caught up
1: oh i've had a couple of things in between that i had bladder stones i had a lot of i had a lot of scar tissue on my back from the surgery another problem that they had when they removed the tumor is it was so big that they couldn't close the wound properly the first time so they had to use a pig skin oh yeah okay Um, and They used pig skin until they could get, basically, enough skin to close the wound. Um, And then when they finally did the closure, it basically is paper-thin skin, very close to the bone. There's not a lot of muscle there. So when I was about 10, I had skin expanders put in, which are basically saline balloons that they fill up slowly over time to stretch your natural skin. And it's basically a way to skin graft. They do it a lot of times for burn victims. And it's basically taking your natural skin and expanding it very slowly over time. Wow, what did you call that? I I I think I was 10 and we did it over the series of like, I think two years, these injections, maybe. What was it called? Skin expanders skin
0: expanders interesting
1: i didn't realize that they use pig skin oh they don't that was very experimental i was gonna say i've never heard of that before no they were throwing anything they could at me at that point okay it was a sort of give it all you got kind of thing yeah hope something sticks yeah (laughs) I mean, they they said Hopkins for a reason. Hopkins has a reputation for doing really groundbreaking procedures and really controversial ones, too. So like separation of craniopagus conjoined twins. So twins joined at the head that shared their brain. They did the first separation surgery at Hopkins under Ben Carson, who was also my neurosurgeon. That was a very challenging surgery that to the rest of the world was considered not not viable, to like no one was going to survive. And they were able to save, I believe, one of the twins in the end, and now they're able to save sometimes both of the twins. And they were the groundbreaking hospital to do that, but also they were the first hospital to do that because Hopkins has the guts to do it. They have the guts to go into the new field, hit the ground running, throw everything you have at it. That can be hard for a lot of hospitals, because they don't want to risk reputation, they don't want to risk lawsuits, things like that. But there's sort of, I think a mentality here, since I also work at Hopkins now that you have a lot of passion for something, you're going to give it all you've got. And I think that extends to basically all the fields in medicine and yeah it saved me ultimately so i have a lot of gratitude for that mindset
0: yeah i don't know why i'm blanking out right now i'm trying to think of where i was going with that it's <laughs> a lot of process <laughs> you have a lot going on going. i want to make sure i get everything so is your your skin on your back is fine now though it's all stretched out and covers everything and
1: yeah they did a really great job it was a team of reconstructive surgeons at hopkins that did all the skin expanders and i mean it looked basically brand new my i mean i couldn't believe how good of a job they did it did grow to be a little tighter as i you know got big Mm -hmm. like got older and there was one side in particular so my left side where i have more muscle and my leg is stronger and i think because i use that side more or I favor that side, the scar tissue got a little tighter again. So Mm -hmm. actually last week I had a scar revision again. Okay. And so I'm healing from that. So I'm taking some time off from being a grad student. It feels very strange to sit at Ah. home for a week and answer emails and do some computational analysis, but that's about all I can do. (laughs) <laughs> but I want to make sure it heals well. And my lab has my back. There, a really great group of people that are helping me get stuff, keeping stuff rolling while I'm away. Yeah. In the laboratory, it's like a constant stream of things that are going on. And so it's really nice to have people sort of keeping the ball rolling. Yeah.
0: So what are you studying in your, in your grad classes? Like what so, are you aiming for?
1: I a PhD student at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and I'm getting a PhD in biomedical sciences. More specifically, my research is trying to use nanoparticles to deliver gene therapy agents for treating genetic diseases, specifically cystic fibrosis, as well as potential immunotherapy applications for cancer. So my primary lab that I work in is a genetic medicine lab. And then my secondary lab is a biomedical engineering lab where we do the nanoparticle formulations. And so I'm basically trying to find a way to deliver the therapeutics that we have into the cells that we need to get delivered. Okay. and. You think definitely
0: that your own experience going through everything and your experience with John Hopkins is what
1: kind of swayed you into this field? I'd say it had a very heavy influence. I don't want to say it completely defined it. I think either way, I've always had an interest in nature and science. When I grew up, I loved to be outdoors. I loved we had a little farm. So we had chickens, we had goats, we had bunnies. I loved that. I loved taking care of the animals. I loved wandering in the woods and finding things and bringing them home. Just not in the house. But I think either way, even if I hadn't had all these medical experiences, I think I would have found myself into this field eventually. I just think that my, my personal experiences definitely accelerated it and made it very clear in a way that's very lucky because I found something I'm very passionate about and I've been able to pursue it since I've been in college basically. For a while I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. I knew that I liked research a lot and I knew I liked that during school. The question was, do I like research so much that I don't wanna go to medical school? I think that was the big thing that I weighed back and forth eventually, I realized that research was something I was very passionate about. And it would have made me just as happy to do research as it would have been to be a doctor. And honestly, in the American healthcare system, American medical system, I was not about to go into debt. <laughs> to yeah. put myself through <laughs> quite the process of medical school.
0: Yeah, I mean, and honestly, too, I think we need more researchers. You know, I feel like there's tons of things out there that aren't being studied closely enough because there's either not enough people afflicted by it. So they just don't care to, you know, research Mm -hmm. it. Or there's obviously not enough funding to continue doing research. And, And so I think whenever anyone is interested in as passionately as you are, in doing any kind of research that's going to further any kind of medical or health related thing. I think it's it's great that they get the opportunity to do that.
1: Yeah, it's very rewarding too because it it isn't as translatable always as for example, being a nurse or a doctor and seeing patients in the clinic every day, but I have a very special position in my lab. My PI, my boss is a pediatric pulmonologist. And so part of what we do is we take the nasal cells from patients who have particularly rare genetic mutations of this particular disease that we don't know whether or not they will respond to drugs that are commercially available. And we test their cells to see if they will respond to the drug And if they do, that is enough proof for the FDA to grant them emergency use authorization for that drug. So our lab, when you think of labs, I think you think of them as very removed, very separate. But one of the reasons I chose my lab and one of the reasons I love it so much is you can really see the interface. Like our lab meetings, we have physicians on board, we talk about clinic and how things are going there, like which patients might benefit from something like this. And there's a lot of impact that we can see that really also makes the, the projects that we're working on that are more long term really feel like they matter. They have a foothold.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you, you do get to see kind of what your research has done for people. A little bit, at least at the lab that you're at, you, you get a little bit more of a bird's eye view of how that's helping people.
1: Yeah. I think it's a very rare case of being able to see translational medicine. It's, yeah. Well, that was a nicer way to say it than how I said it. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> about that.
0: <laughs> so, what are things that you still have to look out for and like, keep an eye on like are are we ever still worried about the tumor coming back or cancer or anything or we're
1: officially like done with that as of like three years old oh, they're good questions you know I had like the brute of my surgeries I think I had like I think I had about 20 surgeries by the time I was 16 but after that I had a really nice pause up till last week of no surgeries. And it was such an interesting shift because I had always known my life medically as basically going in for a surgery, hospital time, recovery, like reset, and then hope things are better. And I was lucky enough to have all the surgeries that I had, I wound up better off. the other side after recovery i discovered in college that there was a lot of scenarios where i was not going in for surgery but i was getting sick so chronic urinary tract infections um, kidney infections things like that it was the first time i glimpsed the hospital without having to go in for surgery it was a very sort of weird experience for me i think i had like a partial bowel obstruction in college i got a kidney infection three days after graduation when i got to grad yeah. school i got a really bad kidney infection uh shout out to my roommate at the time annie who drove me to the er is like peak COVID times november 2020. oh my gosh yeah me at the door <laughs> <laughs> and It was it was so weird because the first time I got a kidney infection, like it was like, oh, this feels like a really bad UTI. And then I had a fever, a really high fever, and my heart rate was just crazy. And that was really strange for me, because usually as a kid, even though I had all this stuff, I was like, quote unquote, healthy, like my immune system was surprisingly robust. So I didn't get fevers, didn't know why my heart was going like 120 beats a minute lying down. So I called my friend and I was like, Hey, can you like drive me to the ER? And he like, picked me up. He's like, okay, like, let's go. I'm like, yeah, I think I have a kidney infection. He's like, huh, that's very specific. Aaron, I don't know about that. Let's see when we get there. (laughs) Like he like uh, came in with me. He sat with me through the entire like ER experience and they came in are like yep you have a kidney infection he's like how did you know that i had a gut feeling <laughs> but they gave me antibiotics and i was out of there in two days and in college i was on the rowing team i was a coxswain for the men's boat and so the reason he was so avid that i was okay in the hospital was i was coxing his boat at and- the like club nationals <laughs> so they put a bunch of pillows in the car they threw me in the back seat and they drove me <laughs> drove me down 10 hours to georgia so we could race thanks to the wow. antibiotics, <laughs> i was totally fine to do it <laughs> it worked out timing worked out r- very well on that one the second time I got a kidney infection, it was nothing like that. I was in the hospital completely alone because of COVID. The place looked like a <laughs> scene from contagion. I had all the hallmarkers of COVID, so they had to put me in like a <laughs> isolation room. And oh, we yeah. had to come back. And it was a long time before I got the antibiotics started. And it made a difference. because I was a lot sicker. And... I remember the big difference was about the time, like a couple of days after I'd been in the hospital, they were about to discharge me, and they're like we can't discharge you just yet because the blood cultures that you gave in the ER came out positive. So basically, you were septic. We didn't know it. I was like, oh wow, oh man, and like. And then the doctor, she said, it's very good you came in when you did, because we could be, we would not be in this situation right now if you hadn't. Like That's not scary. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> like, this is a lot to go through by yourself. Yeah. A lot of drugs. <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely, that was probably the most, honestly, one of the most traumatizing experiences was having to go through all by yourself when yeah. you're really, really sick. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff I still deal with. The kidney infections are sporadic, but they hit hard. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's sometimes like the scar revision I just had, there's the ortho- orthopedic issues that are eventually going to come up, like my hips have had so many operations. My feet have had so many operations they're probably more susceptible to like, I have early onset arthritis, things like that. So trying to take care of that, preserve the joints as long as possible, things like that. And then you had a very good question about the tumor. And the challenging thing with the tumor is, according to medical literature, it should be nigh fast impossible that it returns because it has been gone for so long. But it is not impossible. And I have recently, my neurosurgeon, Ben Carson, retired. And since then, I had stopped seeing a neurosurgeon. And it wasn't until I came back to Hopkins a year ago or less than a year ago that I saw another neurosurgeon. And he basically said, Hey, I looked at your MRIs from the past couple of years, and there's a mass. It's not growing, but it's in the same location as your tumor. We don't know what it is but we'd like to monitor it so they don't know if it's inflamed tissue they don't know what it is but it's something that we have to keep an eye on right and i know that that it growing back is not out of the question because i have heard stories from very long-term survivors who have had their teratoma come back 20 years down the line 40 years down the line It's according to medical literature, impossible, but so is most of the stuff I've just told you, right? The fact that I'm still talking to you today. So (laughs) I'm not discounting it, but I'm, I'm not waiting for it around the corner either. Right. I don't think it's my worst nightmare. I think, I think it's my parents' worst nightmare. I I just can't fathom it happening, because I can't remember anything about the original tumor to begin with. Right. It's just, I just have to know I have a good team and take it one day at a time, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, it sounds like you're in a good
0: spot, too, to to be monitored. I mean, you have... You're back at John Hopkins. You have your neurosurgeon now who's keeping an eye on it. I mean, you're in a good place to to be able to just kind of wait and see.
1: Yeah. And you know, that probably isn't gonna be all the case. Like grad school's not forever. I am in year three. Who knows what the last year will be. Lots of, lots of theories. You never know when, as they say, but for now everything's Gucci as they say. Yeah. So I guess,
0: yeah, I guess then I just kind of want to talk about just briefly like, what are things that you do on a day to day basis that are different than what I guess people who don't have medical problems going on with? I mean, you take care of your ostomy. I know some people change it once or twice a week or like how often do you empty it how do you cath on a schedule
1: Um, schedule.
0: Mm. yeah because i know a lot of girls that don't have feeling there they have a strict schedule of when they're supposed to go and yeah do you do any like bladder irrigation i mean those are all just i mean off the top of my head that i guess seem like everyday things for a lot of us but like to people out in the audience who don't have anything going on. They're like, wow, that's so crazy. <laughs> it's a lot to yeah. keep in mind. It's a lot to fit into your day when you're so busy. I mean, especially with the grad school like schedule, you you must be in constant motion.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess when, when you've already dealt with it for so long, it sort of goes on the back burner in your mind. It's part of your schedule. I think yeah. Austin is honestly like really low maintenance, like I've had it all my life and i've had it so long that up to this point i've like optimized the process so much that it's pretty smooth you know change it maybe like once a week empty it like a couple times two or three times a day it depends on the day super easy to manage my catheterization i try to stay on a schedule of like you know every four hours and leaving it overnight sometimes those four hours do not happen it usually depends on my schedule and lab honestly and it depends how much water i drink i try to drink a lot of water i found that that helps a lot with you know keeping back infections and things like that mm. staying well hydrated always good
0: question with that
1: do you know how big your bladder gets
0: Uh, yeah so can you like calculate how much water you've drank and like how full your bladder is going to be and like i
1: don't know if thought of it that way i like i like that i think it would be challenging the the only thing is you never know how much water your body needs to absorb right so like If you've had a cup of black tea or a cup of coffee, you're definitely going to have to go pee after drinking half a bottle of water. Right. But if you haven't, you're probably fine for two, three hours. I'd say. Just
0: curious how, if you'd thought about that and like, yeah. Ever tried calculating (laughs) it out of like,
1: oh, I had that much there and like, Yeah. Yeah. That might be a might even be a better way to do it than just being like, I think my bladder is full now. <laughs> Especially, you know, if you have a completely neurogenic bladder, like, I don't know how it is for you, but I sort of just get like a feeling of like, oh, there's pressure and my belly is slightly distended. So I guess it's like time to go. <laughs> it's been time to go and you need to do it right. now. Because <laughs> I mean, the kidney infections could be
0: being caused by like reflux of of back from the bladder and up the um, urethras into the kidney mm-hmm. and so if you know like how big your bladder is and you are watching how much you're intaking it might be easier to prevent the kidney infections
1: yeah
0: versus like I assume by the time that you can
1: feel it's uh, the
0: pressure it's probably already too late it's probably already backed up
1: yeah I honestly that's a that's a very good suggestion that I should take up my kidney infections remain a mystery because despite having I go through periods of irrigating and not irrigating basically it's basically how much has my body scared me for me to want to do this again Um, so I always have my setup and I'm trying to get better I'm trying to do it like I, I was doing it once a month now I'm doing it once a week and I'm gonna try to get it up to three times a week because I saw Dr. Gearhart today and he asked me very nicely. And I can't say no to him. So I'm gonna do my best. I think that's the secret. You do it, you introduce it slowly. The flushing is very irregular. And I do also have a kidney stone, but the jury is out on whether or not that has caused the kidney infections, even though it is also in the same kidney that has been infected every single time. And they, you haven't had that removed? No. It's it's a little bit of a catch-22. So the, the kidneys don't, they don't know definitively whether or not it's causing the infections. It's been there. Right. And it's just been chilling in my kidney, honestly, for the past four years now. It, it hasn't... It not hurt? It doesn't hurt. <laughs> unless, unless... I hope my cousin doesn't listen to this. But, um... <laughs> Uh, the one time it did hurt was when i got in a car with him and we drove to his house and he just got his license he was very excited he's just a little little heavy on the gas go- <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's like a study about how like if you go on a roller coaster enough times sometimes it can dislodge kidney stones because of the like motion that the roller coaster makes. Oh. so they actually have had doctors prescribe like go to a theme park. <laughs> what? <laughs> because it will dislodge some people's kidney stones. Wow.
0: I haven't heard of that. That's pretty awesome. Fun fun facts. I would do that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean I did I did go to a theme park. It doesn't seem to have worked. <laughs> Yeah, Maybe, was, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't work for everyone. Yeah, it, it just it sounds like happen. you have to go again. Yeah, this little stone is like the bane of my existence. <laughs> it was like it it was so funny because I was not told about this. I got a CT scan when I went in for like a partially obstructed bowel in like sophomore year of college, which is like, I don't know, 2017. And they noted it on the MRI report but they didn't tell me. Um, Oh, So it's been noted there for like, I don't know how long now. 2017 to 2023, that's like (laughs) seven years. Yeah, so it's been there. So it was there, but I didn't know about it. And then the reason I found out is I got that kidney infection. They were like, oh, it said you had a stone. I was like, I was not aware of that. Said, oh, well, we'll scan you again. And they're like, oh, it's not there anymore. It must be gone. That's great so you're stone free we'll let you go then a year later i get another ct scan like you have oh no i got an ultrasound they're like oh here's your kidney stone it was right I thought that went away <laughs> yeah so i've been playing this game literally like it's there it's not it's there it's not because it's pretty tiny and it's in the middle of my kidney like just hanging out and it just it's just depends on the resolution of the machine oh you're using, God. I guess. And so I just play this little game. It's like that whack-a-mole game. It really is. It's so funny too. It's just a single stone just hanging out in the weirdest location. And every single doctor, when they see it, they're like, oh, it's super small. It'll pass within like the next couple months. Like, that's funny you should say that. <laughs> Wow. That's I think my favorite, pretty funny. I think my favorite story with the stone is I've just like accepted it as like it's like almost like a wives tale at this point, I feel like and I studied in Germany for a year after college doing research and one of the things that they had me do is they set me up with a nephrologist just in case I had any problems in Germany with, you know, my kidneys and um, that's a whole story in itself because going through the German healthcare system was very interesting, being medically complex and still learning the language. Um, yeah. But. Uh, <laughs> They they saw the stone, they wrote it down on a piece of paper, and they're like, okay, it's there, it's not doing anything, you're good. And then a couple months later, I got a bladder infection. I was like, I don't feel great. Like I went into the clinic, they were really great. They were like, okay, like, let's just stop it in its tracks. Let's give you some antibiotics cause you don't feel good. And let's just check on your kidneys. And the, the guy doing the ultrasound, he had it in his, cl- he had it like in his little office. This little like townhouse, like little German like townhouse, and he's just like, okay, like let's take a look. It looks like it came out of the nineteen seventies. Like how how old is this? He's like, I think it was made. Let's see. And he looks at my birthday. He's like, it's definitely older than you are. I'm like, okay. And so he's he's poking around with his his ultrasound, and he's like, your kidneys look good. I don't see any stones. I'm like, okay, okay. That's nice. And he's like, but you have an accessory spleen. He said it in German. I was like, a what? And he he wrote it down. I put it into my Google Translator. I was like, oh. And we're both sitting there staring at each other, like, huh? Ah. We we both learned something new today. <laughs> It was the funniest. You had a what spleen? An accessory spleen. An accessory spleen. So apparently in like, I think like 10% of the general population, you can have smaller spleens attached to your actual spleen. Okay. Like little baby spleens, I guess. Like a little extra one. (laughs) Yeah, it's like an extra. and and all of the imaging that I've ever had. No one's ever noticed. Never never noticed, never mentioned. And then there's like, this ultrasound machine from like the 1970s Germany. I can (laughs) pick up my kidney stone, but it picks up this. It's like, did you know this? It's so cool. I have (laughs) never seen one before. (laughs) What? Wow. So the kidney stone has taken me on many adventures. I have. To-
0: <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, I'm thinking at some point I wanna do like a travel episode and just have like different stories from different past guests about like traveling experiences. I love so that. You might have to come back and tell us about some, some more Germany stories.
1: Oh, gladly. Yeah. Definitely. Because yeah, a whirlwind being there as the pandemic hit too. We oh, there. were you really? Oh yeah, and then I stayed. Wow. Mm-hmm. But you had your surgery. I mean, you had the kidney infection during the pandemic back home had in it, the U.S. Though I came back to the U.S. in August 2020 to start grad school. Okay. So I came back right before it happened. My body was really good to me, actually, when I was abroad. That's lucky. It was, yeah, it was a stroke of luck. The only time I had to go into the hospital was because a friend of mine broke their nose and had to get it operated on, and I went with them. Well, that's kind of nice. It's really nice. It's really ironic. We're coming here and it's not for me. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, this is great. I will sit back in the waiting room, relax, watch you come out of anesthesia. (laughs) Which is always fun. (laughs) Yeah, I've never seen someone else come out of anesthesia. And I don't know if this is like a guy thing, but as soon as he woke up, he was like, I need to leave now. And he tried (laughs) to get up. Out of the bed, so woke <gasps> up, I was like, "No, no, no! You're staying here for now." And the other nurse had to come over, and we had to restrain him. Oh my God! <laughs> I'd like to go home now. i'm Like, no,
0: <laughs> we're, not, no.
1: we're not going home. <laughs> I came out of I'm like, I'm not moving. I don't want to wake up. I'm fine right here. He's like, Nope. Let's let's go home. <laughs> nope.
0: <laughs> wow very different reaction yeah. yeah well have i missed anything have we touched on everything i can't i mean think. yes and no right
1: <laughs> yeah the typical typical day in a life you know i think if you've already had a lot of medical conditions and you've grown up most of your life with it it doesn't feel like it's too much out of your schedule Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely, I'm trying to think of like tips and tricks, like hacks for things I do. I think in terms of the ostomy, the reason, like the longer you have it, the better you get to know what works for you. Like the products you like the best. Oh yeah. I was going to
0: ask you about the ostomy. I know some people are like, really into just like having it out there and showing. And some people are like really just like want to keep
1: it hidden. Where do you kind of stand on that? I I will say that when I am surrounded by anyone else with an ostomy, I will gladly like show it off. I will wear a bikini. I have so many other scars that I barely even think about it. Honestly, okay, so having it like out and about. I don't really think about It's also my ostomy is like slightly below my belly button and I wear high waisted jeans. So if I wear like, if I wear that, you can't even see it. The only time you'd see it is if I'm wearing a bikini. Okay. So I don't even think about it as being like out and about my scars are like all over my body anyways. And I'm so used to just, I mean, you can't hide all of them. So. Right why try it anyways some of them look pretty cool
0: so you're kind of more of like you don't you don't go out of your way to hide it but you also don't go out of your way to show it off yeah it's there and if you notice it you notice it
1: yeah it's like i think my mentality is like they're probably staring at something else. They're too distracted to <laughs> notice that if you notice that, like kudos to you. You have a really good eye, um, cool, cool for you. If you want to ask a question about it, go ahead. But um, the rude thing is to just stare. I'd rather you ask yeah. a question.
0: Yeah. Have you had anyone or have you ever had
1: any interactions like that? No, I've had some really rude like just staring, you know, especially when I had like ankle foot orthotics, which are like the braces on your legs, which I had till I was like 13 or 14. And it's funny because I would walk around school with them all the time and my classmates got so used to it. It was just like, whatever. But if I went out in public, I'd have adults in the grocery store just like staring around the corner. And I was like, that's like, I felt that was the part that like, I think annoyed me the most. Cause it was like, I get if a kid is doing it, I don't get why you can't just move on with
0: your day. As, as an adult, you should know better. Yeah. And be able to be in more control of your actions. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I get like, it if a kid is, I mean, kid curiosity and... Yeah, exactly. You
1: just want to know everything that's going on. So like there's curious kids, like it's fine if they stare, it's fine if they ask questions. Yeah. also I think what's something that bugs me, and I've talked to this too, with people who have like a more visible disability. So if you're in a wheelchair you have braces on your legs is usually it's like old like ladies that come up to you and just like, what happened to you, honey? Like questions like that. Yeah. And it's it's not really a, I don't know. It just, it, it always hits me the wrong way. And I found it also hit other people the wrong way. And so I never really knew what to say to that. It was like implying that there's something very wrong with you. And so my response became... These are just my legs. They're fine, because they are fine now. They could have been a lot worse. And I remember someone at camp telling me that this old lady came up to him in his wheelchair, and she's like, what happened, honey? And he's like, I'm going to use this for my own personal amusement. So he said, oh boy, I was attacked by a shark. Oh, my gosh, of course. He
0: lives in Hawaii. The go-to
1: for everything, of course. (laughs) He had to go for it. She's like, oh, my gosh, that's so terrible. He's like, yeah, they were on the bus. He's like, it was on that beach right over there, too. That poor little lady was probably so scared. (laughs) She was like, what have I unpacked today? (laughs) With my innocent little question. (laughs) I mean...
0: Is it one of those things that we can chalk it up to
1: like being unaware of how they're coming off? I don't know what it is. it just makes me uncomfortable. I try to yeah. answer as politely as I can right and move on, but I think if I was in the right mood i would have I would also give a response like that <laughs>
0: yeah really yeah, it really depends on your mood I mean. Cause it's also implying that like well a of course like you said there's something wrong with you or b that like something happened to you that was horrific or horrible or whatever and why it's, is
1: that your business random person
0: It right like why is that your business maybe nothing happened maybe i was born and couldn't use my legs and that's why i'm in a wheelchair i don't know you know like In which case, then, yeah, it turns back into like that just makes it sound like there's something wrong
1: with me if that's just how I am. Yeah, I feel like there's always like weird situations that you have to deal with when you have like a chronic illness, even if it's completely invisible. Like I remember going to the nurse in high school and there would always be like that one kid in class it's like why do you go to the nurse every day or there would be that one substitute that's like why are you going to the nurse or you don't have to go right now oh yeah and, you know, i do <laughs> yeah it's like actually <laughs> there's always there's always going to be those people and you just have to think about how you want to deal with it yeah it's nothing personal it's right <laughs> coming from them yeah yeah
0: well and then it turns into do you really want to take it on yourself to then like educate them on it exactly like it's not your responsibility to do that especially
1: when you're a kid and you're just trying yeah. to do part of your routine right um, it the timing matters things like that it, it does. <laughs> Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah wow there's so much. I mean, we could keep talking, but I mean, it's already been an hour. So, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's you know, it, there's still so much to talk about. I mean, there's, yeah, there's so many things that aren't medical related it, that are related. Yeah. Well, because medical affects everything. And I, I feel like
1: I say that in every episode, but it's so true. Yeah. Especially, I think when you have a congenital abnormality and you've grown up with that and you know no different, it's, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I think I'm gonna wrap it up for right now. And if you don't mind, I'll keep you in mind for future episodes for like travel tips or just different hacks and things like that, if you're interested.
1: Yeah, I'd love that, that sounds great. Looking forward to it already.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Body Talk with Bex. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, both with first doing the interview and again with editing the audio. I really enjoyed this conversation with Aaron and uh, please leave me a review. Or hit the subscribe button or do both, uh, wherever it is that you're listening to this podcast at. If you have any questions for me, please feel free to send them to me. Again, I am stockpiling them until I have enough for another Ask Me Anything episode. If you want to further support this podcast, please join me on Patreon. Again, the tiers have been recently updated for a few small additional things like the emails monthly with recaps of all the episodes, as well as any important links to resources that are mentioned in any of the episodes. And lastly, if you would like to share your story or know someone who would, I can be contacted through my website, www.bodytalkwithbex.com or on social media. Thank you so much for listening.